you have your Bibles, turn with me for just one moment as we attempt to place this next lecture in perhaps a biblical context for practical consideration. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, hear the word of the Lord. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Let's pause for just a moment and pray together. Living God, we pray now that you would help us as we consider the practical matter before us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction in your word uh, to be those who do these things that we have just heard read in the lives of those in your church. And we pray that you would give us the strength we need, wisdom, clarity, and aid by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the course of this conference, we have heard the voices of many who've gone before us. And there has been, as one person just described it to me, much meat and potatoes for us to chew upon. But I want us to also consider the fact that there will be voices that we will perhaps spend even more time listening to in our day-to-day -day lives in pastoral ministry, and even those of us that are not pastors or church officers, just in the body of Christ. We will indeed consider, as we read the voices of Aquinas and Bavinck and the Puritans, among others, but I would submit to you that the voices that we often hear the most are those who are the faint-hearted in our congregations. Those who come to us with a variety of challenges and situations. Consider the example of preaching perhaps uh, twice on the Lord's Day and then before everyone leaves there is that fellowship time where the saints are gathering together and consider the situation of the one who comes to you, pastor, and begins to share some challenges, some issues perhaps, some hurts, some sins, and you then say, well, let's meet together this week, brother, and you're in your study later that week, or perhaps the local cafe, and you begin to discuss with that saint that dear one in Christ, the things that he has brought to you just days earlier. As you listen to that voice, what do you do? That practical question, really a very practical question, is what I'd like to address in this lecture entitled, A Model for Pastoral Counseling and the Will. A couple of things need to be said. You wouldn't think that this lecture would be controversial, but in case you aren't aware, the topic of counseling and Christian counseling and pastoral counseling can in some ways be very controversial. Let me just say at the outset that unlike our God, who is simple without parts, we are complex. And our complexity under the fall further heightens the need for pastors counseling to consider the delicacies before us, to consider the need for pastoral sensitivity of listening well. And there have been brothers down through the ages who have done that. Let me encourage you to just take up, for instance, even though we wouldn't agree with everything that he says, but Gregory's the pastoral rule. Or you could consider any number of the Puritans. I'll give you just a few in a moment. But before I present to you a model which I seek to use when I'm listening, how do I keep all of the parts that I'm hearing straight? Is there any interconnectedness between thoughts and emotions? How do we throw the body in there? Is the body at all involved? Or are we just disembodied souls? How do we keep all of these things straight? Let me give you a couple of theological foundations. I'm just going to mention them, perhaps with 
very little comment, and then walk you through uh, a model to consider. Obviously, we are creatures. We are not creator. Creatures made in the image of God. We are fallen creatures. But perhaps one that needs to be continually on our minds is that we as complex creatures are made up of both body and soul. Here, for instance, a smattering of writers from previous eras. Again, Herman Bavinck, quote, spirit and matter, soul and body are certainly distinguished in scripture, but they never stand dualistically opposed to each other. They are at all times closely united, influence each other, and work together with each other. End quote. This is from his Principles of Psychology. And perhaps, like me, you've been reading the recent translations of Bavinck over these last few decades. Uh, but maybe you weren't aware that he was quite prolific in his writings in the area of theological anthropology as it relates to psychology. And some of those works are being translated and are very helpful. Or consider the Puritan, the early Puritan, if you will, Richard Greenham, who died in 1594, an English clergyman. He writes this. Now think of the state of modern medicine and then go back some 450 years or whatever the exact mathematics may be. He writes this, quote, For my part, I would never have the physician's counsel severed nor the minister's labor neglected because the soul and body dwelling together. Joel Beakey has written some in passing on the Puritan Richard Greenham and his consideration of the body in pastoral care. I would commend to you, if you're really interested in that and you want to read a PhD dissertation, you can go to the 2017 PhD dissertation written by John David Morrison uh, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and his work is entitled, quote, Minister to the Body, Richard Greenham, and the Other Side of Puritan Pastoral Practice. But I, I give you these few quotes just to say that the, the need to consider both body and soul are not really new. They were in, in the mind of Bob Inc., uh, some 100 plus years ago, or the Puritan, uh, Richard Greenham, some centuries back. But it's a theological foundation that we need to consider, that we are body and soul. Again, one more quote by Bob Inc. He says this, There are psychologists and pedagogues who disregard soul or body, intellect, heart, or will, the unity or the diversity of the life of the soul. But the scriptures do justice to the whole man in all his aspects. Soul and body are not dualistically opposed to each other like two clocks, but they are most intimately united in man's personality and are such essential constituents of man's being that the separation between the two wrought by death shall again be done away with by the resurrection. End quote. One other theological foundation that we need to consider before we dive into a model for how we hear as pastors the information that comes our way when dear saints desire counsel with us. And that is simply what I will entitle the light of nature, and I'm not entitling it that way. It uh, is listed as such in our confession, chapter 1, paragraph 1, that there is a sense in which we can learn some things from the light of nature. And this is where perhaps some of the debate surrounding so-called Christian counseling often finds its origin. If we consider the body at all, does that mean that we are denying the sufficiency of scripture? That's really the question. That's really the debate. And I would submit to you that considering the body that the Lord God has made Considering it properly, yes, interpreting the things that we can learn from the light of nature through uh, the aid of Scripture in no way means that we are diminishing the sufficiency of Scripture, for Scripture is sufficient in all things to which it speaks. But we are aided when we remember that we are 
soul, and body. So let me show you, brothers and sisters, a model. This is a model that uh, I have developed, for lack of a better term, over just years of counseling. Um, and it helps me. It may not help you, but it helps me to listen. Because in between the readings that we will do of saints of bygone eras, we will be listening to saints who are right in front of us. And they'll be laying out all kinds of challenges and concerns. So is there a model, is there a way for us to consider how we listen? There should be, in just a moment, a slide on the screen there for you. And it's there, and I'll explain it, but if you find this of value, uh, there will be a photo... Uh, photocopies of this uh, after this lecture that will be right up here on this um, stand and we can, you can have one of those if you like. Let me explain this model to you. I don't know if you can see all of it, but we have been talking about the heart in some sense. We've been talking about the soul. We saw yesterday that there are uh, different writers, for instance, John Owen, who will discuss the heart. Bob Inc. discusses the heart. There are many others. But when you listen for certain things, when you seek to apply the word of God, how, how do you take in all of the things that you're hearing? Because if you're like me, a person will come to you and they will talk some about their behavior. Do we seek to simply change behavior? Is that all that we seek to do? Sometimes you will get information about a variety of emotions, how a person feels. Sometimes you will get thoughts. It will tell you about thoughts or beliefs. And then, of course, there is that category, which many others have described uh, rightly as the heart and perhaps the heart's tendency towards idolatry, the so-called idols of the heart. Who can forget John Calvin and his statement that our hearts are idol, I-D-O-L, factories in our fallen state. So how, how do these things interrelate to one another? And is there a way for us to keep these things straight? Now, you'll notice on this model that there are two other um, categories, and I've listed them for you here on either side of this circle. These are categories which are important, and they influence, I would argue, thoughts and emotions and behavior. Now, let me just say at the outset of describing this that when we're talking about these things, I'm not making a direct connection to just faculty psychology. I'm discussing perhaps the whole experience and the whole person that you will encounter before you. So our discussions in previous lectures, I think, are very helpful. Per perhaps at its core, as we consider this idea of the heart and its inner workings, if we can say it that way. But notice these other two categories, relationships. Relationships. Relationships indeed do impact the thinking patterns that individuals can grow to have. That is not to lay the blame of our thoughts at the feet of others, but it is to say that our social environments are things that are worth considering. But then notice also the other category, and that is the category of biology or physiology. Is there a sense in which the body is at all important to the things that we hear when we're offering pastoral counseling? Someone comes to you and they tell you that they are depressed. You make the argument that there must indeed be a deep-seated sin, and that is the reason that that individual is depressed. So you go in there with your sword of pastoral care and you start hacking away at the individual. Where is the sin? Only to find out that the person is actually regularly attending to the ordinary means of grace, is pressing day by day into Christ, 
is perhaps living a life of spiritual discipline. No known sins that are unrepented of, if you know what I mean. You begin to ask a series of questions and you find out that there has been a pattern in that person's family over the years. Various generations have wrestled with depression. If you go far enough back, you may not hear the word depression. You may hear other terms. Um, So-and-so had a nervous breakdown in the 1930s, 1920s. But you you see perhaps a biological connection. I would argue that it's important for us to consider, in this instance, the impact of the body on the experience and the emotions of the individual. That in, in no way is meant to deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, let's take person number two. Perhaps this has happened to you as it has happened to me. They come to you and you're counseling them and you begin to believe, you know, I, I think this person is just really just depressed. I need to send them to a physician for uh, just a medical workup, a checkup. You know, are, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Just a blood checkup. How are your vitamin levels? These kinds of things. In fact, you recommend such counsel only to find out later on when pressed after multiple sessions that the person has been living a life of secret, unconfessed sin. This is a very challenging thing because in case A, you're ready, you're looking for this secret, unconfessed sin so that you may apply the truth of God's word to it and cure the depression. But in case B, you're thinking, well, this this must be all biological only to find out that there are certain reasons why the individual is indeed having the emotional experience that he or she is having. So let me explain this model to you and how I use it. When I'm counseling an individual, I think of this model in the sense that these categories give me buckets to place information in. And I actually want information, as much information as I can get, from these various areas. Uh, I want information regarding biology. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not asking us to be medical doctors. But, but how are they eating? How are they sleeping? Right? Any family kind of background that would be helpful. When's the last time you've had a medical checkup? Okay. Because, let me just say this, when I'm considering the possibility of a medical checkup, that doesn't always equate to I'm sending them to the doctor for a psychotropic medication, right? But I also want to know about relationships. What, what might the relationships be? Uh, relationships in the family of origin? Or are we to forget that families with great sin patterns can indeed influence teenagers, and adults later on in life. Uh, If the person is married, uh, relational challenge is there. But I do want to get information regarding behavior. I will also need a bucket, a category for emotions and thoughts. Now for me, and some of you might want to label me a cognitive therapist, I don't mean to come across that way, but for me it's very important if I can get information on thoughts. And here's where this model not only gives me the opportunity to have buckets to sort all of the information, because brothers, isn't there a lot of information that we get when we counsel? And sometimes if you're like me, you're hearing what feels like Niagara Falls. And and you don't know where to put all of the information. And and you're having to work to kind of help lead the counseling session, uh, or, or at least that's what You've been told you have to do it. You need to lead this thing. (laughs) Where do you put all the information? But once you've got the information, is there any kind of interconnectedness? We would all agree, particularly those of us that are parenting young children, that just stopping behavior is not the ultimate goal, right? We've modernized that in some secular counseling theories where the goal of the therapist is simply to 
give you a device like a rubber band where when you're feeling angry, you just snap it, and that pain response helps you to remember, I'm not going to do that behavior, and that solves the issue. We would say that's insufficient, wouldn't we? Biblically, that's insufficient. But when I'm listening and I hear behavior, a lot of times, and I don't mean to insinuate that every behavior is caused by an emotion, but a lot of times underneath the behavior is a set of emotions. And we do live in a day where people have a very hard time distinguishing between emotions and truth. And I understand that, right? In fact, just listen to the way that people speak. Sometimes when they mean to say, or when they should say, I believe this or I think this, they constantly say, I feel this. So I understand the, the challenge, but we have to be careful that we don't swing to the opposite end of the extreme and say, emotions are not helpful at all. Don't even share your emotions with me. Don't even talk about your emotions. It's just not important, right? Emotions are God-given, and they can be helpful in our consideration, because in some cases, they're like alarm bells. They, they help us. But if we only talk about behavior and emotions, we're still not getting to the core of the issue, are we? So for me, it's helpful then to ask questions like this. And sometimes I will try to, to use an open-ended kind of strategy, open-ended questions. What are the thoughts underlying the emotion. Now, that's a formal way of saying it. Perhaps we need to say it in this way. When you're feeling that way, what are you thinking or believing? Can you just take a moment? When that happened and you were feeling, and then you fill in the emotion, sad, mad, whatever the case may be, what were you thinking? Because when I hear thoughts, I'm now going to get to an area that we can work with and perhaps apply the truth of God's word to that area. Is this a faulty thinking pattern according to the scriptures? And these categories help me not only to have buckets to put the information in, they also help me to have a roadmap for how to move forward. Let me give you a couple of examples as to how this model may be used. Uh, let's take a simple example. I call it simple because we'll be able to see it simply in this outline. It's, I don't mean to imply that if this happened to you as a pastor on Monday morning, that it would be a simple situation. But a man in your church, relatively young believer, has perhaps confessed to you from time to time that he struggles or Others have said, said that he struggles with anger issues. Have you heard this before? And so you get a call Monday evening, and he's in the local jail. Because this brother got into an altercation at Walmart. You see, he was standing in line, and someone stepped in front of him. And he began to verbally argue that he was there first. I mean, in one sense, it, it is rude of someone to cut in front of you. It may seem uh, like there's been an injustice committed. But this verbal altercation moves into a physical altercation where this relatively new member of your church takes it upon himself to uh, enact justice and punch the other person. And so now the police have been called, and he is in the jail, and of course, he calls you. So as you're talking with him, you, you have the behavior. The problem is, we don't punch people in the Walmart checkout line. That's the behavioral change that needs to occur. Have we done sufficient pastoral care? I would argue that while, yes, we don't want him to continue to punch people in the Walmart line, there's something deeper there, isn't there? There are heart-level issues. But how do I get from behavior to heart? For me, it's helpful to consider the various parts in this way. Uh, brother, what was happening when, when you decided to punch this individual, which we both acknowledge is sinful? This was not an act of self-defense. You took it upon yourself to punch someone else. Well, I was feeling angry. And so you begin then to move one step lower to that ring of emotions. 
can you stay there? Can we just help him not punch people and not have angry emotions as much? Well, I would argue no. We need to go even deeper, don't we? So in these instances, I may say, well, when you were, you told me a lot about what happened, you told me about these emotions, what were you thinking? What were you thinking in that moment? I don't mean you look at him and you say, what were you thinking? I mean, you may have already done that. <laughs> what I mean is, what were the thoughts that you had? And he begins to tell you, well, I, I don't know, pastor, I just felt, and there it is, right? That's an emotion, but don't be overly corrective. I just felt angry. Okay, I understand that that's how you felt. What were you thinking? What was crossing through your mind? And he begins to tell you, well, it's just, it wasn't fair. It wasn't right. I was there first. And then after a while, he'll move into perhaps further thinking patterns like the world is unjust, all kinds of, of thinking patterns. Now we can do some work. Doesn't that person see me? Doesn't that person know who I am? Right? These kinds of thinking patterns. Well, now we can apply the truth of the scriptures, perhaps, as we go one step lower than thoughts to the heart. The heart. What was going on in your heart in that moment? Well, as you begin to work through the thoughts, you help this individual see that one of the tendencies of his heart, perhaps for a variety of reasons, which in some cases may also have to do with the relationship piece, that one of the core parts, if you will, of the thinking of his heart is the primacy of self. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't mean to in any way submit that this is the best model out there, but it gives me buckets to drop all the information in, but it also helps me to navigate towards the heart in a way that doesn't minimize very important information. Well, I said that was the simple example. I would submit to you that if you get called to the jail on Monday night, I don't know that you would consider that a simple pastoral situation. But I say simple because we can just walk from one place to another. Well, maybe we'll take one that's a little more regular. The, the person that comes to you who says that he or she is depressed. When you hear this, I think it is important to listen for these categories of behavior, of emotions. You'll get a lot of emotions. I don't feel pleasure in things that I used to feel pleasure in. I, I don't feel happy. I feel sad. I find myself much more irritable. And, and you're, you're just taking note of all of these things. Some of these things we want to correct right away. But I would submit to you, as I, as I tell students when we talk about counseling, that preaching in some sense is like taking the word of God in hand as a sword. But good pastoral counseling, I think, is taking the word of God in your hand like a surgeon's scalpel. And, and we've got to listen well so that we know how to apply the scriptures well. Because it's very possible to try to apply theological things to human suffering and end up like Job's friends. So we listen, we try to listen by God's grace. And in our feebleness, we're, we're trying to develop a, a model for how we think about all the things that we're hearing. So depression, the person uses the word depression. Now, as you listen, this person begins to tell you that it came on all of a sudden. That they're still praying, they're still meditating on scripture, they're still coming to Lord's Day worship, although it's taking work for them to do that, more than it ever has before. Um, this individual doesn't find any pleasure in his or her child. I'll say her child. You'll see why in a moment. And you begin to think to yourself, there's got to be a spiritual problem here. I mean, your child is a month old. And you, you, don't, even, you don't even want to hold it. You don't, you don't 
You don't want to really see it. There's got to be a core issue of sin here. But because you have a category of who we are as body and soul, and because even though you're not a physician, you realize some basic light of nature things, you realize that there is a kind of body influence, if you will, that happens to many women in a postpartum kind of way. So you begin to tell yourself, this, this woman sitting in front of me has just had a baby and has had very quick depression come on, perhaps in addition to good scriptural counsel from a pastor, it would be good for her to tell her physician that these symptoms have come on. And you know of what I speak, right? Postpartum depression. You have another individual, however, who comes to you and he tells you that he's depressed. And you go down the road of asking questions and you get behavior, you get emotions. For me, it's very helpful to begin to start to think through the thinking patterns underneath those emotions. Because have you ever tried to command emotions in someone else? I mean, I would love to be able to control my children's emotions. I don't mean angry outbursts, I just mean emotions. I'd love to be able to completely control my own emotions. But I would submit to you that where we can offer good aid with the truth of Scripture is when we consider that person's thoughts, which I would argue often underlie emotions. Yes, and this is where it's important to read the entire model, yes, biology can influence emotion. I'll give you an example I know of a fine Christian woman, the least anxious person that you've ever met. You just, there's just not an anxious bone in her body. But she has had several children. And after the birth of one of these children, there began to be this change in how her thyroid functioned. And... Now, without a single thought at all, without a change in spiritual regularity, ordinary means of grace, meditating on scripture, prayer, her body will sometimes just feel very anxious. There's not an anxious thought in her mind at all. Feel very anxious. Her heart will start to race. Thankfully, because we have been able to see in her instance, that her body has a change in thyroid function, we know that this anxiety is a biological kind of change, a physiological kind of change. So I would submit to you that this model helps me to have categories. Now, there are two arrows on either side. As you see on the left side, or yeah, that would be your left side. Um, on the left side, we see from the outside in, don't we? You see my behavior first. You don't see my thoughts, thankfully. You, you, you see our behavior. Sometimes you'll see my emotions, right? And if you get to know me long enough and we have a relationship, you will see my thoughts because I will share some of them with you. And if you're really close to me, like my wife, she can kind of tell you what I'm thinking without even saying anything. But we operate the other way, don't we? From the heart outward. This is just a biblical principle. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? We operate out of our heart. And I would submit to you that the deep-seated realities of our hearts, and this is a soul issue, but it's a body issue, in my opinion, in this next ring, work themselves out in our thinking patterns which then work themselves out emotionally and in many cases, behaviorally. So take the young middle schooler in your church who is from a broken family, relationships, a history of depression and anxiety in his family, biology, 
but a person who, along with his mother, attends faithfully. He has confessed Christ. But he confides in you, his pastor, when you ask him how he's doing, that he always feels like people are laughing at him. And it's really gotten to the point that he can't even walk down the halls of his school without assuming that people are laughing at him. You begin to ask him, what are you thinking when these happen? Well, I hear people laughing and they must be laughing at me. Because you know some of his story, you know that one of the things that he experienced was that his father regularly would verbally abuse him. And so he learned to believe certain things about himself. And that belief pattern has become what some secular psychologist would call a schema, a thought pattern. Now, thankfully, we are not left with secular psychology, are we? But we can borrow insofar as the terms are helpful to then take the truth of God's word, the reality of who we are in Christ, to help this young man to see that he doesn't need to assume that everyone is laughing at him when he hears laughter. You also may need to help him see that sometimes when we make assumptions about ourselves in a negative way, there's still a heart-level issue going on for us. We're thinking about self. You ever thought about that? That pride, thinking too highly about ourselves, narcissism has at its core the primacy of self. But sometimes, even thinking a lot in a negative way about ourselves has what as its core? Self. So you help him with the truth of Scripture in this way. Brothers, I would submit to us as pastors, all of us as believers, that we have to have categories for the complexities of the individuals that we listen to when we counsel. And by the way, we will be offering counsel. Will it be good counsel? Will it not be? Will it be in line with the truth of God's word? Will we be able to offer it in a way that is helpful and pastorally sensitive? That's the question. But we have to have buckets for this, but we also need to have a roadmap. I'm hearing a lot of behavior. I'm hearing a lot of emotions, but how do I, how do I help that person? How do I help us get below just behavior and emotions down to the core of the heart? Well, for me, the bridge is often Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what's going through your mind. Maybe for you, it's something else. Let me give you one last example, and this one would be more nuanced and perhaps more difficult to parse out even with this model. I spent some time a few years ago researching this and thinking about it because I've encountered it in pastoral work. You recall the wonderful words of our confession when it speaks to assurance of faith. You have undoubtedly sat with Christians, believers, who wrestle with theological issues related to assurance. Perhaps they're confusing assurance with the essence of faith. You're offering them pastoral counsel. You're, you're trying to give them assurance. Perhaps you uh, prescribe, if you will, that they read a, a work, maybe, maybe uh, Bunyan's Sinner, Come and Welcome to Jesus, or some other work on assurance, which is just a bold dose of the hope that we have in Christ. But with this new individual... Quite frankly, he's trying your patience because he comes to you with the same thoughts. Last week we addressed this, brother. And you take him to the scriptures to deal with this issue. But the what-ifs keep coming. They don't stop. Maybe there is just this spiritual issue that we've got to get right here. But because you're pastorally sensitive and you've taken time in whatever way works for you, whether it's this model or another, you've gotten enough information about other areas of life, relationships, um, a little bit about biology, uh, behavioral patterns. And again, I don't mean that you are uh, spending years, you know, so-called psychoanalyzing this person. You just 
You've been sensitive to his life, and you know that there has been a pattern not only of repetitive and perhaps obtrusive thoughts in this area, but in many other areas. And you begin to point out this, this, this reality to him. That have you noticed that in addition to constantly having the fear that you're not in Christ, you also have other thoughts that get stuck in your head. Have you noticed that? Oh yes, pastor, if you only knew. I'm worried about, and then the list comes. I'm worried about germs. I'm worried about shoes in the right place. I'm worried about whether I've locked the door at night. I have to check it multiple times. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Well, if we're willing to consider some of the research, there is something. Perhaps it's overused, overdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, but there is something known as obsessive compulsive disorder where an individual gets certain thoughts stuck in his mind or her mind. You need not be a psychologist or a psychotherapist. That is not our calling. That is not our work in one sense, right? But as you listen, you're, you're able to, to help him see that thoughts get stuck in his mind even when he knows the truth. You know the door's locked, but you can't stop thinking about it. And you've spent a little time reading on this issue and you realize that there's current neuroscientific research that helps us to see that certain people's gray matter, their brains, process thoughts in certain ways that for reasons that are varied, some individuals have neural pathways that their thoughts move to and they just can't stop this. Does this person have a spiritual issue? Is this just simply an assurance of faith issue? Or is this person demonstrating in their spiritual walk something that is influenced in some way by their biology in a variety of areas? It doesn't surprise us then, does it? That all fears seem to get stuck. Shoes, germs, Doors being locked. Am I going to be with Christ when I die? And there's a pattern. Some would call this scrupulous OCD. And I would argue that if you are able to see that this is a pattern, you can, and this is where this might be the most nuanced, you can, you can begin to help that person not dwell on the question as much. Now, this is where it might sound a little controversial because in areas of sin, we want to dwell on the issue so that we repent. We, we want, we want to, to take that issue before the Lord, don't we? I, I don't think if someone came to you and said, Pastor, I'm, I'm struggling with lot. Well, just don't worry about it. Don't, don't think about it. Pastor, I'm, I'm wrestling with, with, with pornography. Well, let's just not talk about it. Let's talk about something else. We would say, well, that's pastoral malpractice. We, we need to dwell on this issue in a godly way long enough that we may repent of sin and look to Christ. But in this instance, because you have all this information, you're able to see that the foundation has been given theologically, that the person is attending to the means of grace, that they are meditating on Scripture, but perhaps, perhaps in this instance... They need to think less about this because the thinking is what gets them stuck. I would submit to you that this sounds very nuanced, and I certainly can't work it out all here, work it out completely here. But we are body and soul. And our bodies, in many ways, are influenced by the fall, and there are things that biology will influence. Now, that is not to lay the blame for sin at the feet of our genes or our cells or neurotransmitters, but it is to say it's a consideration that if we want to have a robust theological anthropology, we need to consider. We were right as believers in the 1900s, 
to make the argument that we need to start to use the scriptures again in the care of people. That was a movement. But we have to also be careful that in doing that, we don't undercut the very theological anthropology that those scriptures proclaim to us. That we are body and soul. So how will you do it? How will you consider emotions and behavior and thoughts? This is the way that I try to do it. It gives me buckets to put these pieces of information in. It helps me to guard against assuming that before I've heard the full story, everything is simply a sin issue. And it gives me a path forward when I've got lots of emotions and I'm stuck. Every honest pastoral counselor, biblical counselor, Christian counselor, whichever category you prefer, every honest counselor is going to say we get stuck. Well, this, this gives me a roadmap. Let's talk about your thoughts underlying these behavioral patterns, these emotions. Of course, we can remember the psalmist holding on to sin, not repenting of sin, making the claim that his bones wasted away. Do not our spiritual journeys impact our bodies? But also, don't don't our bodies sometimes put before us a variety of situations that will bring challenges even in our spiritual walk with the Lord? So we must consider both. Some of you may be familiar with the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Um, There's a helpful statement that I think that they give us. It sounds a little bit like Richard Greenham, the Puritan. Sounds a little bit like Herman Bovink. And I'm not saying that it's perfectly worded, but listen to what they say in one of their nine theological foundations. They've affirmed the sufficiency of Scripture in a previous one. Listen to what they say here. We believe that human beings are both spiritual and physical beings. Therefore, we recognize that people are physically embodied by God's design. A variety of bodily influences impact moral response. We take the whole person seriously, granting that there are ambiguities at the interface of soul and body. We seek to remain sensitive to physiological factors as the context within which God calls a person to faith and obedience. Paul tells the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, admonish the idle. I would submit to you that we are in the best position to do that when we know who those individuals are, how they're put together by the living God. And when we have enough information so that we are not making theological accusations without having the proper context in view. You know, I've said this to students before. There is one thing that Job's friends did right. They sat for a while with him in silence. When they opened their mouths, that's when the problems began. There is a sense in which if we take time, and it does take time, If we take time not to simply refer every counseling case to someone else, but to listen well, to be sensitive enough to get some of the information in these categories, we then may be in a better place to take the word of God as a scalpel and encourage, in some cases, call to repentance, and in some cases, comfort the one sinned against. I wish we had another hour. What if... My counseling view is every problem is your sin. When the real problem is that in relationships, someone has been deeply sinned against. We take the time to do all that with a roadmap and a way of putting all this information there, then we are in the best position to counsel those that Christ has entrusted to us. Brothers and sisters that counsel women in your churches, 
But brother pastors, this is difficult work, and I don't have to convince you of that. And whatever your counseling theory or approach may be, what is not debated in this room or among every true believer is that Christ calls us to care well for his people, and we want to care well. But I don't have to convince you that this is difficult work. It's challenging work. It's tiring work. In some cases, in God's providence, perhaps which seems like a frowning providence, counseling work is the reason why there is division sometimes in our churches. Because counseling cases move to church discipline cases, and the counsel is done well by the elders. But not everyone will see it that way. And until the Lord returns, this work of counseling can be so tiring and require so much patience. But if we have a direction and we listen well and we take up the scalpel of God's word in our hands and we're pastorally sensitive to the complexities of finite creatures before us, then I think we're in the best position to seek to honor the word of the Lord when he calls us to do the work that Paul instructs the Thessalonians to do. So I leave you with my model. You may love it. You may hate it. It's just an attempt to say, I'm too feeble to be able to just remember everything and always know where to go. But it helps me. And if it's helpful, I leave it with you, perhaps, as one among many ways to seek to listen well, to get the right information so that we counsel well. Let's pray. Living God, we pray for the work of pastoral counseling. It is a practical offshoot of the topic of this conference. And so I pray for those in this room who are wrestling with tough cases. Lord, I pray that you would give these individuals, these brothers, what they need to counsel well. We pray that you would help us to see the sufficiency of Scripture to address all that the Scripture speaks to, that you'd make us pastorally sensitive, help us to have categories for when we listen. We pray for your churches, and we thank you for this supplementary work of pastors counseling. We, we pray that you would help us to do this well for your glory in Jesus' name.